0: Welcome to The Better's Verdict, a Herbert Smith Freehills podcast on gambling law, sports law, and crypto law. With me today, I'm thrilled to have back on the pod my former professor from the Gabelli School of Business at Fordham University, Mark Conrad. Mark, welcome back. Thank you so much. So last time you were here, we spoke about sports betting and college athletics and point shaving and and the laws in that area. And recently, the Supreme Court just issued what will surely be seen as a, a landmark decision regarding the NCAA. I think we should just dive right into it. Tell us about this decision and what this case is about.
1: All right, let's, let's start. This has been a long running case. This case was first filed eight years ago on behalf of a group of student-athletes that sought a major reform of the NCAA rules, particularly the restrictions on both compensation and educational expenses. The claim what were those was, rules? Well, those rules are basically that the amount of scholarship money is limited to a certain formula, and it can exclude certain aspects that may be involving computers or maybe certain internships or maybe a year of graduate school, in a fairly minor restrictions in the scheme of things and then there were restrictions on general compensation like salaries, endorsement deals, uh, coaching, teaching, you know, that are sort of beyond what one does as a student athlete and this complaint was a wholesale challenge. By the time it got to the district court out in San Francisco, the district judge focused more on the educational portion of it, the educational expenses. Portion of it and ruled those restrictions were illegal under the antitrust law, but upheld some of the others. So, this was not a complete victory for the uh, student athletes on the district court level, but it did, the decision did say that the NCAA is subject to antitrust law and could be challenged on antitrust law because these policies, of course, applied to all the schools uh, that were members of the NCAA. When so, you say the yeah.
0: restrictions were minor, sorry sorry to interrupt, what you mean is they were very restrictive, correct? Well, I mean
1: that they were they're very restrictive in one sense, but in terms of dollars and cents, the uh, educational uh, restrictions were not that huge. I mean, they were certainly probably in the $5,000 range, you can say, and that's what the district court looked at. So it was something that could be liberalized. The district court said that the restrictions on educational expenses were simply too narrow to be justifiable. But, and this is the big but, the court upheld some of the others. And yet, the NCAA appealed, and so did the, um, did Alston and the the other members of the class appealed.
0: Sorry to jump in. What, What is the legal theory? Why wouldn't the NCAA be able to do what they want? They're a private business. Well, they
1: are a joint grouping of a number of universities together that make policy as one. And the policies are binding in every college and university that is a member of the NCAA, which is basically the great majority. And they control uh, college athletics. And basically, they're limiting free choice on the part of students to decide and of schools to decide what kind of scheme is going to be the best for them. So it's really like you're looking at a series of 1,200 businesses with the same kind of restrictions on the people who may work in their businesses or be associated with their businesses. And that opens up the issue of antitrust law, which basically uh, prohibits agreements of two or more that unreasonably restrain trade in interstate commerce. Well, certainly there are two or more Uh, an agreement here. There were 1,200 based on the rules uh, and of three divisions. And also, these were uniform. There was no choice. So it's not like a student would get into school A that will say, we'll give you more of these expenses than school B. It was completely standardized and it diminished the value of many college athletes. So so for
0: the non-lawyers out there, why is it a problem for them to for the business to restrict trade? What, what is sort of the policy behind these antitrust concerns?
1: Well, it's a consumer choice, one. Consumers want more free choice. That's uh-huh. one big general concern. And a second concern is the labor force. Because if you think of college athletes in a sense as performing some kind of labor or duties, you know, their rights are considerably restricted from making choices. Uh, based on what their opportunities could be if somebody is a talented student athlete and arguably wants to give tennis lessons for $20 an hour they were prohibited from doing that really wanted to make an endorsement deal uh, they were prohibited from doing that they would lose their eligibility uh, to compete and the rules could be very very particular Uh, and Jeremy Bloom gave up you know a huge endorsement deal he was a skier to play football at the University of Colorado a number of years ago, even though mogul skiing and football have nothing to do with each other, and mogul skiing is not an NCAA sport, but he was deemed a professional. Jeremy the NCAA- Bloom, of
0: course, is the brother, I believe, of the famous Molly Bloom from the movie Molly's Game.
1: I think you're right. I think you're right. Although I think of him more as the student athlete than uh, than the brother of the. Uh, this the is the gambling
0: world intersecting with the student athlete world. I, <laughs>
1: I guess so. Yeah. So uh, interesting coincidence. But nevertheless, uh, you know, if somebody is talented at what they do. Why can't they earn extra compensation for doing it? It's the last vestige of amateurism in the world. The Olympics ended this notion decades ago, but the NCAA, you know, they clung on to this longer than they should have, and ultimately they got burned by the Supreme Court.
0: Well, wait, you you said the Olympics ended this policy decades ago. What, What do you mean by that?
1: Well, at one time, to be in the Olympics, you had to be an amateur. You could not be a professional athlete, and you could make no money doing that. And the great Jim Thorpe was stripped of his medals because he played semi-professional baseball for a small amount of money, which had nothing to do with what he got his medals on, and he was stripped. It was a strict rule in the Olympics till the 1980s um, when uh, people woke up and said, this is really makes no sense and it will not hurt the product if you allow professionals to compete in the Olympics and the international sports bodies generally regulate the specific rules regarding that and there's some variances within those bodies but still more likely than not you have professionals and anybody watching the olympics sees that you know these athletes get endorsement deals some of them you know the basketball players who play in the nba the hockey players play in the nhl when the nhl teams were comp- players were competing so there's really no a distinction like there was, but in college sports in the United States, there was that distinction because the idea was you wanted to make a clean slate for everybody. You didn't want certain colleges with more money, you know, fattening up the talent by offering more goodies. Uh, And there was a certain logic behind that at the time. But right now, because big time college sports is such a big business and the NCAA is getting billions on rights fees from basketball, The conferences are getting billions on rights fees for college football. Uh, People pack in these stadiums, paying a lot of money to watch these uh, athletes play. And the athletes got nothing. They got nothing. Everybody made money. You know, the broadcasters made money. The stadium operators could make money. Uh, The conferences made money. The NCAA made money meaning money coming in. Every The sports writers made money. The broadcasters made money. But the student-athletes didn't. They I, didn't, and they're the, they're the folks that people watch. And, of course, are, the coaches make lots of money.
0: <laughs> yeah, for sure. I, I remember there was a college basketball player named Ed O'Bannon who was a very popular and great college player but didn't really make it in the pros. And I recall he was involved in a lawsuit. Um, a while back about this, but I guess it that it it wasn't sufficient to change the tides.
1: Well, that's a little different, and that was a different tact, and that was not the subject of this Supreme Court ruling. Mm. That's been another issue which we can get into, but if you want, we can talk about the ruling first and then get into uh, the issue that uh, Obannon was arguing.
0: Y- yeah, let's let's talk about this about this case. So you you said the district court found in favor of the athletes but it wasn't completely more or in less favor. yes they found
1: more in favor but not totally the athletes' side was not that happy because a lot of the restrictions stayed both sides appealed it to the ninth circuit court of appeals which made a certain amount of sense both sides were not that happy you know they made certain points so it goes to the ninth circuit the ninth circuit essentially affirms the district court they say district court you're right we're not changing anything then the NCAA makes an appeal to the Supreme Court. And this is something I could not figure out, even at the time. I said, why are they doing this? Because they won a reasonable victory here.
0: What was their reasonable victory before we their get into it? The
1: reasonable victory is that many of the compensation rules, uh, restriction rule, uh, restrictions on the compensation were upheld.
0: So college athletes still can't be paid under the Ninth That's Circuit.
1: Right. That was right as as of that time that's right they still and they still cannot be paid although that could change but uh, they they couldn't be paid based on the district court's ruling those restrictions stayed in place so i wondered why would the ncaa take this risk but what what is the risk well the risk is that the supreme court ruled in a sense what they ruled and in particular what justice kavanaugh wrote in his concurring opinion
0: was exactly the
1: nightmare that they they uh they find themselves in right now
0: so so yeah we'll we'll get to kavanaugh's opinion um so the so they go to the ninth circuit the ninth circuit affirms the district court's ruling which is to say certain expenses there's not going to be a limit you can't limit certain educational expenses and payments like for example going to grad school for a certain amount of money or Computers a, a, a pop- or certain yeah,
1: things like that, or maybe a little bit of travel, I guess. Yes, yeah, something, a little bit extra money. Right. So
0: we're not talking about huge dollars there, but I guess the NCA was still concerned, so they decided to take what you're describing as a risk of going to the Supreme Court and saying we want you to say no. They can't get anything, which what which has been their rule over the last century, I guess. Um, and they would they wanted the and the Supreme Court to take it up and they did and that's what led to this opinion correct that's
1: right they they did take up the case and it led to this opinion the oral arguments did not go well for the ncaa uh because there was extreme skepticism by many justices of their rationale so you may say what's their rationale for being so anti-competitive their rationale was one we're really not a commercial enterprise like professional leagues and two we espouse amateurism as a matter of policy because the fans of NCAA college sports watch those sports because they're amateurs and not professional athletes and are different. And the Supreme Court basically ruled that both these arguments are nonsensical because that's what they are. They're nonsensical arguments. Who's to say if a student athlete's paid a few bucks or if you get an endorsement deal that People are going to ha- not watch college sports. 100,000 fans are not going to go to Michigan to watch football and freeze their behinds off in November and December up there. They really I made that, that argument that. to the
0: justices? Yes, they argument. did.
1: Yes, they did. They made that argument and they basically made in connection with that, they said that, you know, we are really not commercial in the same way. And of course, in the opinion and during the argument, the justices like said, are you kidding me? Like, look at the kind of agreements that you're making. Look at the billions of dollars we're talking about. You know, to say that you're not commercial, you know, is something that, you know, we really are very skeptical about. And then on the theory, because there was a lot of theory in the case, basically they said that the NCAA should get a easy review of their arguments under antitrust law and i don't want to get too too technical but they wanted a test called quick look like you do a quick look not a lot of analysis and say yeah the NCAA really makes some points and you go no further the general test that's used in this kind of antitrust case is something called a rule of reason it's a balancing of the anti-competitive aspects which there were many in this case, and the pro-competitive justifications for them, which there may be some. And in many cases, you can show that because there are a lot of restrictions that may be on its face anti-competitive, but there could be good reasons for them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and courts would look to that. And it's a complicated test, but, but the court was looking at that test, and they said, you know what, NCAA, first of all, we're going to look at this more analytically than you want us to look at it." And of course, if they did, you know, they really saw that the justifications the NCAA made uh, will be you know, thrown out, which indeed they, they would be. And there are other ways to try to deliver the product without being so severe. And they upheld the lower courts injunction, but also saying that in the future we're treating you like another series of businesses we're not treating you like you're anything special and that's, it was a big deal because the NCAA really threw out this argument, looking at past cases, and there was one case they really relied on in their argument from 1984, which had nothing to do with student athletes; it had to do with broadcasting. And the court, in passing, said the NCAA has a revered tradition of amateurism in college sports, and and waxed about that, you know, in a few sentences. And the NCAA was saying, "Aha." see that language in 1984 you got to go buy that language in 2021 and the ncnd court said no we don't it has no finding precedential value, it was an off-the-cuff statement, if you will, and the world of 2021 is much different than 1984, and football agreements between colleges in 1984 have nothing to do with student athletes' issues in 2001. So forget the argument, and the fact the NCAA had to rely on something so weak really showed you the fallacy of this case that, again, they had no business even trying to appeal it, they could have lived with the lower court ruling, and now we get, as the icing on the cake, to Justice Kavanaugh's separate opinion. He well, agreed with the before majority. Before you get, before yeah. you
0: get into, into Kavanaugh's opinion, I just want to interject here about what you were what, what you were saying about this 1984 case. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I believe the court said about that, they quoted Justice Jackson and said, We may be uh, infallible only because we're final, but that doesn't mean we need to listen to an offhand remark or something of that sort, which is a very interesting um, statement from the Supreme Court. And it's certainly something that I think is going to make its way into a lot of briefs about things that are dicta or not really the core holding of cases going forward.
1: Yeah. And this oh. was dicta it was bad dicta. On top of it it was like not even really applicable dicta. You know it was just that you know you you have to raise all sorts of arguments on a supreme court appeal of course but this one was particularly weak because they had really didn't have a lot of cards in their hand. And that's what we get to Kavanaugh's concurring opinion. Kavanaugh's yes. concurring opinion says, look, we had to decide the case based on the lower court's injunction of these rules. But That does not mean that the other rules can't be challenged, like compensation, like some of the broader issues we're talking about. And in his opinion, he said, I'm gonna look at it from a broader point of view that I think that the whole series of rules are troublesome. And between the lines, he's saying, you know, applicants or plaintiffs, you can litigate more on this. You can open the door more. You know, we're not giving you, or.'" A, an endorsement of these other restrictions we couldn't we didn't want to go that far because the core issue in this case had to deal with the lower courts injunction uh, revolving the rules on educational expenses so we didn't want to go into the idea of pay or health insurance or things like that or NIL name image and likeness we're not going through that but be forewarned that there could be future lawsuits on that. And you can bet that people all over the country were reading that and said, ooh, he gave a yellow light, not a green light, but a yellow light, saying that other rules in this system could be subject and vulnerable to challenge under antitrust laws. And that's what's really should be worrisome to the NCAA. And it is, because right after that, the NCAA pretty much. Uh, you know, basically, just you know, gave up, uh, lifted its hands, and said, "We are just simply not going to enforce our restrictions on name, image, and likeness." And that was done uh, at the end of June because they know already on that issue, state law is going to apply in some states, so and what they're is, basically what is that saying, about?
0: "What is name and image and likeness?" Yes,
1: yeah, name and likeness. Basically, the right of a student athlete to monetize their Name their image and their likeness for endorsement purposes or other purposes to so sell it to media. the video
0: games or oh, so right. they could be on the cover of a game
1: or be more than that as a social influencer, make mm. a deal with um, Snapchat and say, Look, pay me for so many impressions or YouTube or whatever it may be,
0: right? Because they, like, they have a lot of followers, they have a lot of sway if they're a popular athlete. And that's worth millions of dollars that they previously were unable to, unable Absolutely, to collect
1: unless they would give up their eligibility to play and they didn't want to do that. So there's a new world out there. Now, that name, image and likeness was not an issue in this case. It was the issue in the O'Bannon case. Hmm. And the O'Bannon case is a case you referred to earlier, which was an earlier uh, incarnation challenging the restrictions on name, image and likeness deals on antitrust law because O'Bannon was image was used on a video game years before really without his consent and without any money. And he's saying this can't be. And he said, I should be able to get some money out of this. And now he was already graduated. And a lot of the playing the group in that case were, they were alums, they were graduates or no longer play college sports. And the courts generally um, basically sided partially with him, just very quickly, partially with him. But after that, the state started taking control and said, you know what, let's not worry about the courts, let's just pass state laws that allow this kind of stuff. And that started in California a couple of years ago and it's spread in many states. So as of now, uh, And uh, early July, I should say, there are about seven states that have allowed name, image, and likeness deals, meaning the NCAA, even if they would enforce the restrictions, which they're not, they can't because they can't supersede a state law. Mm -hmm. The problem is, and we have now about 20 states in the hopper on this issue, is the problem is that the state laws are different. There are differences in different laws regarding what kind of deals could be made. And it's kind of hard to harmonize that. But certainly, uh, if you're looking to go to school in California, where there is such a law, or Florida or Georgia, you may have more advantages, you know, a possibility than maybe in other states.
0: But I think yeah, that's those schools too. a leg up in recruiting, right? It could. It could a <laughs> leg up. But a lot of these schools,
1: these states have the big schools anyway. You know, and I think that that's one of the reasons they passed this legislation. And the NCAA now, obviously, uh, in a whole, wants Congress to um, pass a national bill on NAL. Okay, that's fine, but they want it with an antitrust exemption uh, that they can't be sued for antitrust on these matters, which may not be so fine. And I really don't think the Democrats or Republicans are going to buy into that because I don't think that they're in the mood to say, give the NCAA a break and an antitrust exemption is a huge break because mm-hmm. that means you're not sued for antitrust, you know, as the major league baseball, they've had one. It's a nice th- way to operate because you could be as anti-competitive as you want. So, I don't think that's happening and I'm not so sure we're going to get congressional legislation. We got about seven bills in Congress, but the states already are there and the train may have left the station. So, we are in a totally new world and in fact, the very first day NIL was legal, if you will, already there were some pretty big
0: endorsement deals signed. Which is not surprising. Can you tell me a little bit about, you you said Major League Baseball has an antitrust exemption. Can you yes. tell me how that plays out? Well, in l- labor
1: area, it doesn't really play out that much anymore, but in the operations of baseball, it certainly does because it's a quirky reason why they got it. They got it because of an old 1922 Supreme Court opinion that said baseball was not engaged in interstate commerce, so the antitrust laws couldn't apply. Maybe in 1922, that was
0: true. Sounds ridiculous. It's,
1: Absolutely, but it was affirmed twice by the Supreme Court in the 50s and in 1972 in the Kurt Flood case because the court said, we don't want to change it now because they bought baseball's argument that time to say, if you change it, it's going to be a disaster for the sport, and the majorities accepted that, and they also said Congress can always change the law, and Congress never did. Uh, so, it's still there, and where it still applies today is the relationship with minor league baseball. That kind of interlocking relationship could pose antitrust problems if antitrust law would apply. Uh, it doesn't mean it's illegal, but it could be the basis of a lawsuit. But right now, it's not, because they have the exemption. Hmm. They, I mean, baseball has the
0: exemption. To, to get back to Justice Kavanaugh's opinion, or, so this, this, this decision in general was a unanimous 9-0 decision, correct? Correct. Um, so one justice concurring, maybe that wouldn't ordinarily be too big a deal. They want to write something a little different. Um, and you sort of went over this earlier, but why do we think this concurring opinion from Justice Kavanaugh is so important?
1: Because it sends a yellow light or a light, a light. to potential litigants to challenge more of the NCAA rules.
0: And by more of the NCAA rules, at least in my view, the big one you're talking about here is whether we can pay a salary to players. Is that right? One of the big ones.
1: I think health insurance could be another one.
0: It, m- meaning that colleges are required to give health yeah. insurance to the players?
1: They are required under NCAA rules for a time. But the time, I believe, is up to two years after they play. But I, uh, But I'm not sure of exact years. Mm-hmm. But schools without that restriction could say, hey, we'll give you five years medical insurance, 10 years, you know, go to our place, you know, make a more competitive environment. And the medical insurance question could be a big one, especially if the student athlete never plays in the pros and does get an injury. That's a nagging injury. Right. So I see that being an issue as well. And I also see a very odd possibility. It sounds odd, but it's not unionization of certain college teams Mm -hmm. and the reason for that would be, even though it sounds sacrilegious, if certain college teams form a union and are deemed employees based on the number of hours they work, they can negotiate a collective bargaining agreement with the colleges and that agreement is antitrust proof because in labor law, labor agreements are exempted from antitrust enforcement. You go by what each side says. So now the colleges may say, you know what? Instead of all this litigation, maybe it's better if student-athletes want to unionize. We'll just have an agreement. We may not pay them much. Give them health insurance. Buy three, four years of peace and take it from there. It's going to open up that question, which was something that was really – pooh-poohed for many years to say, well, they're not even employees. Well, there are ways you can really deem them employees under the labor law. And this is something that I think could possibly help both sides and just get these antitrust cases out of courts because they're long and they're expensive and you never know what a judge is going to rule on this stuff. It's very theoretical. I mean, on this case, it was pretty obvious. The only betting was, would it be seven to two, eight to one or nine, nothing. I lost the bet. I thought it was seven to two and my colleagues said nine, nothing. Okay. But it was clearly that the NCAA was not going to win or get what it wanted.
0: So you're suspecting that unionization may happen. Is that something the NCAA you think can withstand? Because they would certainly argue well, this is going to destroy their business. It destroys amateurism. They're going to be paying huge salaries to these players maybe one day. Um, how do you think this is going to change the landscape of, of college sports?
1: Well, one, they're not paying the salaries. The schools are going to pay the salaries. So it's up to the schools to decide to do that. And the schools may decide to contest the unionization or the students may not unionize. And I don't think many will. Because if you are an employee, then you could be fired, for example. How would the scholarship work in uh, to this scenario? There are risks. There are risks for the student-athletes as well. Uh, So it may not be a big salary. It may be just insurance and maybe maybe other benefits. So I think that – but that becomes a strategic question and not a question that's imposed by the NCAA by restrictive policies. So the NCAA clearly is not going to be happy, but they're not happy now because their power has been significantly weakened. Uh, they're not going out of business any day soon because they still have you know, a number of mandates by the schools. But let's face it, uh, in four or five years, it's not gonna have the power that it had before the last year or so.
0: Could it spell the end of college athletics?
1: No, of course not. It could just spell a, a reimagining of college athletics. Maybe the end of the NCAA, but not the end of college athletics. College athletics is a very important part of the educational missions of schools and the experience of students. And many of my students who were college athletes, I was never one, never good in any athlete to be one, uh, you know, had wonderful experiences. It's a great lifetime experience. So, you know, we're not talking about getting rid of it by any means. You know, we're talking about maybe changing it and giving more choice. If a student wants to go the traditional scholarship route, fine. There's schools that will offer that. Uh, If they want to really say that this is my ticket to the pros, maybe there'll be a program that will pay them. And also there'll be additional competition outside the college realm. And those are the developmental leagues. Those leagues now that are being set up for young athletes that don't want to go to college and say, look, I am going to hone my skills as a basketball player and play in the G league uh there's a couple of football leagues that are up and coming or at least planned that would do the same thing and if you really want to do that you can do that and give yourself choice not everybody has to go to college and not everybody has to be a college athlete you can go to college and not be a college athlete you can play in one of those leagues and go to college so you know it's a a kind of a facetious argument when i say oh that means these students are not going to college they can still go to college they just can't play on a college team. I've had students who are professional athletes that went to college. They, I taught them. I know that. They just didn't play college sports. But they certainly can go to college.
0: Are, are you saying, though, that you could imagine there being college sports without the NCAA?
1: Yes. Yes, and... I could. I think they, their regulatory you know, um, regimen you know has some value in some context. But, yes, there could be. There, was, there were college sports um, when the NCAA was a shell of itself in the 1940s, in the 1950s. Were, the NIT was more powerful than the NCAA. There are also a few colleges in this country that are not part of the NCAA. They have different kinds of organizations. Not many, and they're very small-scaled, but there are.
0: Thank you so much for coming on the pod and explaining this to everybody. Oh, it's my pleasure. Um, and where can people reach you again, if they want to hear more?
1: Uh, if they want to hear more, um, they can, uh, my, I'm um, at Fordham University Gabelli School of Business. Uh, you can reach me at my email, that's Conrad at Fordham.edu. C-O-N-R-A-D at Fordham, F-O-R-D-H-A-M E-D-U. And you could follow my Twitter. My Twitter handle is at SportsLaw1, that's number one. So it's sports law number one, uh, and that's at Twitter and, uh, love to have more uh, of you follow, uh, on Twitter as well. So, uh, whichever way is best for you, love to hear from you.
0: That's a great Twitter account. I've been following it. I recommend everyone, uh, follow at sports law one. I'm at Stephen B Jacobs on Twitter and I hope you would follow me as well. And so you don't miss any future episodes of this podcast. As always, this is for informational purposes only and entertainment purposes, not for legal advice. Thank you again for listening to this episode.